Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals that help listeners tackle the storms of life and become more resilient. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Just before commencement exercises last spring, my husband received a letter from a student which read something like this. Dear President Holland, I am completing my undergraduate experience at BYU this month and will be graduating in our upcoming commencement service. My parents are relieved, my professors are surprised, and I am holding my breath. Things could go wrong, you know, even at this late date. And that brings me to my one grievance with you. It is this late date business. My dates have been so late that most of them have never showed up. And I thought it was an assumed part of the BYU contract that I would be married before graduation. Well, you've got just under three weeks to come up with somebody, or I want my tuition back. Urgently yours. Now, obviously, this letter was written in fun. But I do worry that some of you, especially the women on this campus, are struggling with your social life more than you would like. I expect that there are many of you who would like to be dating and who would like to have a guaranteed offer of marriage before graduation. As the chill of winter sets in, you may be feeling about as special as frozen custard. If you are disappointed in the romance or the lack of it in your life, I ask you to do exactly what this student did. Keep a sense of humor. Retain marriage goals for the important commandment it is. But put your energies into becoming. Don't spend your time walking on your lower lip about what is not. That just stretches the heck out of your lower jaw. Be excited about your chance to grow and develop and become. You have so much personal potential, and this is the greatest place in the entire world to develop it. This is the time, and this is the place. It's interesting to me that the rest of the world does eventually discover what was given given long ago in the scriptures. I recently read this. Only a small portion of what we are is developed, and there is enormous potential in the human being. In his book, The Politics of Experience, R. D. Lang said, What we think is less than what we know. What we know is less than what we love. What we love is so much less than what there is, and to this extent we are much less than what we are. Without being smug, we've known that since the dawn of Restoration. And surely that ought to be our own exciting challenge towards becoming, of growing, seeing, seeing, feeling, touching, smelling, hearing, and believing. There would be no time for a harlequin romance or a long, long lower lip with that kind of view. Marilyn Funt, who wrote the book Are You Anybody, did so in response to people asking in the Hollywood swirl if she were anybody. In answer, she said, I used to think being somebody meant public recognition of one's efforts. Wrong. I now know that the feeling of being somebody comes from hard work 
and self-growth. Being in control of my life makes me answer that question with a strong yes. Close quote. If it didn't seem unbecoming of the university president's wife in full view of a television audience, I would just like to shout at you to see in yourselves what I see in you. The only limitations you have are the ones you set on yourselves. All of the tools and techs are here. And speaking from experience, this time may not ever come again. But sometimes we recognize we cannot recognize the real purpose and significance of the moment, which is ours to experience. And that's because too many of us learn only through our heads and not through our hearts. A common man or woman will hear only the commonplace, but a man or woman connected to the powers of heaven will learn that they can be inheritors of those powers. As Christ was moving towards his crucifixion, he spoke, Father, glorify thy name. Then came a voice saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now some of the people there didn't hear anything but a noise, and they thought it had thunder. Others only heard words, and they thought an angel had spoken to them. Only a few heard the words as they were, and they knew God had spoken them. Then Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. And he may have been saying, I already know those things. But did you hear that you too, if you keep company with him, have the potential to glorify his name? Be all that you can be. If you have oil in your lamps, you will find how often you get a chance to light them. If you have cared enough to prepare, your light will attract many, both men and women, who will seek and cherish your companionship. In closing, may I share with you a a direct quote from my baby sister, who graduated from BYU in 1980, returned from a mission in May of 1982, and is still single. Quote, It used to discourage me that girls younger than I were married. But now, having learned what I've learned from my education, and especially my mission, I am thrilled with the direction and opportunities and privileges the Lord has given me to grow. I will have so much more to contribute to my marriage when that time comes. And now I know, after getting to know the Lord better, that it will come in His own due time. I, too, believe that, and share with you my testimony that the Lord loves you, that He lives, and that He will direct the growth of each one of you forever. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sister Holland's remarks leave me a bit uh, shattered at this moment. I had thought uh, that I would tell my usual jokes, but I have now eliminated those. And I thank you for the uh, the very humbling moment you've given me, all of you. This isn't exactly like curling up in front of the fire with a bowl of popcorn 
It isn't even as cozy as the cougar eat with a plate of nachos, but, uh, but in any setting, it is a great privilege to visit with you and to, and to be able to talk, something that I yearn for uh, far more than I get the chance to do with you. The very nature of our opening assembly in September is such that I must there regularly stress university policies and the general expectations that we have for you in a new year. I've been quite forthright there lately, even a little stern last time, in hopes that everyone would understand the very firm moral and academic expectations we set for Brigham Young University students. Last September, I was pretty direct about some problems that we had had the previous spring, and in doing so, I probably sent buckshot out into a very large audience, much like you, who didn't really deserve it. I suppose that's okay if, by word of mouth, you helped carry that message to the very small audience who probably did deserve it. For those reasons, I've wanted to make this visit convened this very morning as the fog and the snow and the midwinter doldrums set in on you. I've wanted to make this message more personal and more hopeful. Often enough, I will have to talk about the university and your obligations to it. This morning, however, I want to talk about you and, in some sense, our obligations to you. In praying and preparing for this hour, I have wanted to help you. I want you to believe that we understand you. I pray even now that you will feel our love and our admiration and our appreciation for you at BYU these days. And by definition, excellence does not come easily or quickly. An excellent education does not. A successful mission does not. A strong, loving marriage does not. Rewarding personal relationships do not. It is simply a truism that nothing very valuable can come without significant sacrifice and effort and patience on your part. Perhaps you discovered that when you got your grades last month. Maybe in other ways you are finding that many of the most hoped-for rewards in life can seem an awfully long time coming. My concern this morning is that you will face some delays and disappointments in this formative time in your life and feel that no one else in the history of mankind has ever had your problems or faced those difficulties. And when some of those challenges come, you will have the temptation common to us all to say, this task is simply too hard, the burden is too heavy, and the path is too long. And so you decide to quit, simply to give up. Now, to terminate certain kinds of tasks is not only appropriate, but very wise. If you are, for example, a flagpole sitter, then I say, come on down. But in life's most crucial and telling tasks, my plea is to stick with it, to persevere, to hang in and hang on, and to reap your reward. Or to be slightly more scriptural, wherefore be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. I'm asking you this morning not to give up, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. That great work is you, your life, your future, the very fulfillment of your dreams. That great work is what, with effort and patience and God's help, you can become. When days are difficult or problems seem unending, I plead with you to stay in the harness and keep pulling 
You are entitled to eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days, but it will require your heart and a willing mind. It will require that you stay at your post and keep trying. On May 10, 1940, as the specter of Nazi infamy moved relentlessly toward the English Channel, Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was summoned to the post of Prime Minister of England. He hastily formed a government and on May 13 went before the House of Commons with his maiden speech. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us. That is our policy. You ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. Six days later, he went on the radio to speak to the world at large. This is one of the most awe-striking periods in the long history of France and Britain, he said. Behind us gather a group of shattered states and bludgeoned races, the Czechs, the Poles, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Dutch, and the Belgians, upon all of whom the long night of barbarism will descend, unbroken even by a star of hope, unless we conquer, as conquer we must, as conquer we shall. Two weeks later he was back before Parliament. We shall not flag or fail, he vowed. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I share those lines with you not only because they are among the most stirring calls to patriotism and courage ever uttered in the English language, to my mind, but also because I relied on them personally once when I was just exactly your age. Just twenty years ago last fall, I stood on the famous White Cliffs of Dover overlooking that English Channel, the very channel which twenty years before that ran as the only barrier between Hitler and the fall of England. It was 1962. My mission was concluding, and I was concerned. Quite frankly, my future looked very dim and very difficult. My parents were then serving a mission also, one of the great blessings in their lives and mine. But that meant I was going home to live I did not quite know where, and to pay my own way I did not quite know how. I had completed only one year of college, and I had no idea what to major in or where to seek my career. I knew I needed three more years for a baccalaureate degree and had some vague awareness that graduate school would inevitably loom up behind that. I knew tuitions were high and jobs were scarce. I knew there was an alarmingly wider war spreading in Southeast Asia which could very likely require my military service. I hoped to marry, but wondered when or if that could be under all these circumstances. 
my educational hopes seemed like a never-ending path into the unknown, and I had hardly begun. So before heading home, I stood one last time on the cliffs of the country I had come to love so much, this royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this fortress built by nature herself against infection and the hand of war. I stood there and I read again, We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. What is our aim? Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. Conquer we must. As conquer we shall. We shall never surrender. Blood, toil, tears, sweat. Well, I figured I had about as much of these as anybody. So I headed home to try. I was in the parlance of the day, determined to give it my best shot, however feeble that might prove to be. Now, at this same time in your life, I ask you to do the same. As you wage such personal wars, obviously part of the strength to hang in there comes from some glimpse, some hope, however faint and fleeting, of what the victory can be. It is as true now as when Solomon said it that where there is no vision, the people perish. If your eyes are always on your shoelaces, if all you can see is this class or that test, this date or that roommate, this disappointment or that dilemma, then it really is quite easy to throw in the towel and stop the fight. But what if it is the fight of your life? Or more precisely, what if it is the fight for your life? your eternal life at that? What if beyond this class or that test, this date or that roommate, this disappointment or that dilemma, you really can see and can hope for all the best and right things that God has to offer? Oh, it may be blurred a bit, a little perspiration running into your eyes, and on a really difficult day, the fight might have one eye closing a bit. But faintly, dimly, and ever so far away, you really can see the object of it all. And you say it is worth it, you do want it, you will fight on. Like Coriantumr, you will lean upon your sword to rest a while and then rise to fight again. But how, you ask, do you get this glimpse of the future that helps you to hang on? That, my friends, is one of the greatest gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not insignificant that early in his life, Joseph Smith was taught this lesson three times in the same night and again the next morning. Moroni, quoting the Lord verbatim as recorded in the prophet Joel, said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids of those days will I pour out my spirit. Dreaming dreams and seeing visions, the Lord's Spirit upon all flesh, sons and daughters, old and young, servants and handmaidens. I may be wrong, but I cannot imagine an Old Testament verse of any kind that could have helped this boy prophet more. He is being called into the battle of his life for life itself, or at least for its real meaning and purpose, just a year or two younger than most of you, perhaps not even that for some. He will be driven and hunted and hounded. 
His enemies will rail and ridicule. He will see his children die and his land lost and his marriage tremble. He will languish in prison through a Missouri winter and he will cry out toward the vault of heaven, O God, where art thou? How long, O Lord, how long? Finally, he would walk the streets of his own city uncertain who, except for a precious few, were really friend or actually foe. And all that toil and trouble, all that pain and perspiration would end so maliciously at Carthage when there simply were finally more foes than friends. Now, felled by balls fired from the door of the jail inside and one coming through the window from the outside, he fell dead into the hands of his murderers at 38 years of age. If all of this and so much more was to face the prophet in such a troubled lifetime, and if he finally knew what fate awaited him in Carthage, as surely he did, why didn't he just quit anywhere along the way? Somewhere? Who needs it? Who needs the abuse and the persecution and the despair and the death? Doesn't sound fun to me. And so why not just zip shut the cover of your triple combination, hand in your article of faith cards, and go home? Why not? Well, for the simple reason that he had dreamed dreams and seen visions. Through the blood and the toil and the tears and the sweat, he had seen the redemption of Israel. It was out there somewhere, dimly, distantly, sometimes even darkly, but it was there. So he kept his shoulder to the wheel until God said his work was finished. And what of the other saints? What were they to do with a martyred prophet, a persecuted past, and a now hopeless future? With Joseph and Hiram gone, shouldn't they just quietly slip away somewhere, anywhere? What's the use? They've run and they've run and they've run. They've wept and buried their dead. They've started over so many times their hands are bloodied and their hearts are bruised. In the name of sanity, or at least safety and peace, why don't they just quit? Well, it was those recurring dreams and compelling visions. It was the spiritual strength. It was the fulfillment they knew to be ahead, no matter how faint or far away. In their very first general conference, convened three months after the Church was organized, the Saints had recorded this. Much exhortation and instruction was given, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon us in a miraculous manner. Many of our number prophesied, whilst others had the heavens opened to their view. The goodness and the condescension of a merciful God created within us a sensation of rapturous gratitude and inspired us with fresh zeal and energy in the cause of truth, close quote, recorded in the Times and Seasons. There they were, approximately, approximately 30 members of the church, meeting in that tiny Peter Whitmer farm in Fayette, planning to overthrow the prince of darkness and establish the kingdom of God in all the world. All the world? What presumption? Were they demented? Had they lost all power to reason? Thirty very average garden-variety Latter-day Saints willing to work for the rest of their lives to what end? Persecution and pain and maybe 30 more members for a grand total of 60. Perhaps they did see how limited their immediate personal success would be, and maybe they even saw the trouble ahead. But they saw something more. It was all that business of the influence of the Holy Ghost and heavens being opened to their view. President John Taylor said later of that experience, a few men assembled in a log cabin 
They saw visions of heaven and gazed upon the eternal world. They looked through the rent vista of futurity and beheld the glories of eternity. They were laying the foundation of the salvation of this world. Close quote. Now, there was to be a lot of bad road between that first conference and a church which would one day have nations flocking to it. Unless I miss my guess, there are several miles of bad road ahead yet of that church. But to have seen it and felt it and believed the future, that kept them from growing weary and well-doing, helped them believe even in the most difficult of times that out of small things proceedeth that which is great. In a battle far more important than World War II would be, these saints also vowed victory, however long and hard the road. Now, nothing in our lives seems to require the courage and patient long-suffering of these early Latter-day Saints. Still, almost every worthwhile endeavor I can imagine takes something of that same determination. Certainly, an education does, including paying off your student loans. It can be done. I have done it. It just takes time. Even love at first sight, if there is such a thing, is nothing like love after 19 years, 7 months, and 11 days, if my marriage to Sister Holland is any indication. Indeed, the best is always yet to be, Mr. Browning. In that sense, Troilus, whose impatient love for Cressida makes him something of a basket case and teaches us a valuable lesson. He that will have a cake out of the wheat must tarry the grinding, Pandora says to Troilus. Have I not tarried, Troilus pouts? I the grinding, but you must tarry the bolting. Have I not tarried? I the bolting, but you must tarry the leavening. Still have I tarried? I the leavening, but there's the kneading, the making of the cake, the heating of the oven, and the baking. And you must stay the cooling, too, or you may chance to burn your lips. Well, the baking of life's best cakes takes time. Don't despair of tarrying and trying, and don't burn your lips with impatience. Let me say just one bit more about the modern tragedy of sweethearts who will not tarry. It is of increasing alarm to me. In mentioning this, I earnestly wish not to offend. I have seen divorce in my own family so I know something of the complexity, the pain, the accusations, and the innocence that inevitably attend it. I do not speak here of specific lives or personal problems about which I know nothing and on which I would not pass judgment if I did. But the general matter of divorce, the abstract matter of divorce, is not only a major social but also a major symbolic problem of our world. With the divorce rate hitting 50% and climbing, more than one million American children live through the trauma of a marital breakup every year to say nothing of their parents. Andrew Cherlin of Johns Hopkins University says that Americans of the 70s and 80s are the first generation in the country's history who think divorce and separation are a normal part of family life. That perception is being helped along by catchy new book titles like Divorce, The New Freedom and creative divorce, a new opportunity for personal growth. Now, no one would wish a bad marriage on anyone. But where do we think good marriages come from? They do not spring full-blown from the head of Zeus any more than does a good education or good home teaching or a good symphony. Why should a marriage require fewer tears and less toil and shabbier commitment than your job or your clothes or your car? 
Yet some of you will spend less time on the quality and substance and purpose of your marriage, the highest, holiest, culminating covenant you make in this world, than you will in maintaining your 72 Datsun. And you will break the heart of many innocent people, including probably your own, if that marriage is then dissolved. You must not give half-hearted compliance to a marriage, said President Kimball. It requires all our consecration. Every worthy task will require all that we can give to it. The Lord requires the heart and a willing mind if we're to eat the good of the land of Zion in the last days. I close with one last lengthy lesson on perseverance. On the 28th of July, 1847, four days after his arrival in the valley, Brigham Young stood upon the spot where now rises the magnificent Salt Lake Temple and exclaimed to his companions, Here we will build the temple of our God. Its grounds would cover an eighth of a square mile and it would be built to stand through eternity. Who cares about the money or the stone or the timber or the glass or the gold they don't have? So what that seeds are not even planted and the saints are yet without homes? Why worry that crickets will soon be coming and so will the United States Army? They just marched forth and broke ground for the most massive, permanent, inspiring edifice they could conceive, and they would spend 40 years of their lives trying to complete it. The work seemed ill-fated from the start. The excavation for the basement required trenches 20 feet wide and 16 feet deep, much of it through solid gravel. Just digging for the foundation alone required 9,000 man days of labor. Surely, someone must have said, on one of those days, a temple would be fine, but do we really need one this big? But they kept on digging. Maybe they believed they were laying the foundation of a great work. In any case, they worked on, not weary in well-doing. And through it all, Brigham Young had dreamed the dream and seen the vision. With the excavation complete and the cornerstone ceremony concluded, he said to the saints, I don't like to prophesy much, but I will venture to guess that this day and the work we have performed on it will long be remembered by this people. But as Brigham Young also said, we never began to build any temple without the bells of hell beginning to ring. No sooner was the foundation work finished than Albert Sidney Johnston and his United States troops set out for Salt Lake City, intent on war with the Mormons. In response, President Young made elaborate plans to evacuate and, if necessary, destroy the entire city behind them. But what to do about the temple, whose massive excavation was already completed and its 8-foot by 16-foot foundational walls already firmly in place? They did the only thing they could do. They filled it all back in again. Every shovelful, all that soil and gravel that had been so painstakingly removed with those 9,000 man days of labor was filled back in. When they finished, those acres looked like nothing more interesting than a field that had been plowed up and left unplanted. Now, when the Utah War threat had been removed, the saints returned to their homes and simply started again to uncover the foundation and remove the material from that excavated basement structure. But then the apparent masochism of all this seemed most evident when not adobes or sandstone, but massive granite boulders were selected for the basic construction material. They were, and they were 20 miles away in Little Cottonwood Canyon. Furthermore, the precise design and dimensions of every one of those thousands of stones to be used in that massive structure had to be marked out individually in the architect's office and shaped accordingly. This was a suffocatingly slow process. Just to put one layer of the 600 hand-sketched, individually squared, and precisely cut stones around the building took nearly three years. 
That progress was so slow that virtually no one walking by the temple block could ever see any progress at all. And of course, getting the stone from mountain to city was a nightmare. A canal on which to convey the stone was begun and a great deal of labor and money expended on it, but it was finally aborted. Other means were tried, but oxen proved to be the only viable means of transportation. In the 1860s and 70s, always four and sometimes six oxen in a team could be seen almost any working day of the year, toiling and tugging and struggling to pull from the quarry one monstrous block of granite, or at most two of medium size. During that time, as if the United States Army hadn't been enough, the Saints had plenty of other interruptions. The arrival of the railroad, twice grasshoppers coming, by mid-1871, fully two decades, and untold misery after it had been begun, the walls of the temple were barely visible above the ground. Far more visible was the Teamsters route from Cottonwood, strewn with the wreckage of wagons and dreams, unable to bear the load that had been placed on them. The journals and histories of these men are filled with accounts of broken axles, mud-mired animals, shattered sprockets, and shattered hopes. I do not have any evidence that these men swore. But surely they might have been seen turning a rather steely eye toward heaven. But they believed and kept pulling. They squared their shoulders and stiffened their backs and went forward with their might. When President Brigham Young died in 1877, the temple was still scarcely 20 feet above the ground. Ten years later, his successor, John Taylor, and the temple's original architect, Truman O. Angel, were dead as well. The side walls were just up to the square, and now the infamous Edmonds-Tucker Act had already been passed by Congress, disincorporating the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the effects of that law was to put the Church into receivership, whereby the U.S. Marshal, under a November court order, seized the temple these Saints had spent just under 40 years of their lives dreaming of, working on, and praying fervently to enjoy. To all appearances, the still unfinished but increasingly magnificent structure was to be wrested at this last hour from its rightful owners and put into the hands of aliens and enemies, the very group who had boasted that the Latter-day Saints would never be permitted to finish this temple. It seemed these boasts were certain to be fulfilled, but God was with these modern children of Israel, as He always has been and as He always will be. On the 6th of April, 1892, the Saints were delirious. Now, finally, here in their own valley, with their own hands, they had cut out of the mountains a great granite monument that was to mark, after all they had gone through, the safety of the saints and the permanence of Christ's true Church on earth for this one last dispensation. The central symbol of all that, the completed house of God. The streets were jammed with people. Forty thousand of them fought their way onto the temple grounds. Ten thousand more scrambled to the tops of nearby buildings to get a glimpse. In the side of the tabernacle, President Wilford Woodruff, visibly moved by the significance of the moment, said, If there is any scene on the face of the earth that will attract the attention of God and heaven, it is the one before us today, the assembling of this people, the shout of Hosanna, the laying of the top stone of the temple. Moving outside, he put that top stone in place exactly at high noon. In the writing of one who was there, the scene that followed is beyond the power of language to describe. Lorenzo Snow, beloved president of the Quorum of the Twelve, came forward leading 40,000 Latter-day Saints in the Hosanna shout. 
Every hand held a handkerchief and every eye was filled with tears. One said the very ground seemed to tremble with the volume of the sound which echoed off the tops of the mountains. A grander or more imposing spectacle than this ceremony of laying the temple capstone is not recorded in history, he said. Later that year, the prestigious Scientific American referred to this majestic new edifice as a monument to Mormon perseverance. And so it was. Blood, toil, tears, sweat. The best things in your lives are worth finishing. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. Most assuredly, you are. As long and laborious as the effort may seem, please keep shaping and setting those stones that will make your accomplishment a grand and imposing spectacle. Take advantage of every opportunity to learn and to grow. Dream dreams and see visions. Work toward their realization. Wait patiently when you have no other choice. Lean on your sword and rest a while, but get up and fight again. Perhaps you will not see the full meaning of your effort in your own lifetime, but your children will or your children's children will, until finally you with all of them can give the Hosanna shout. I testify that God loves each of us, that Jesus of Nazareth, His only begotten Son, came to succor the weak Lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees, bringing, if you will, a divine form of workers' compensation to you who keep tugging those granite boulders so faithfully into place. I love you and I believe in you. This morning I have wanted very, very much to encourage you. You are laying the foundation of a great work, your own inestimable future. Know ye not that ye are the temples of God? I pray that your life may be a monument to Mormon perseverance, however long and hard the road, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage by study and by faith. Come follow me, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.